Welcome to WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. WellMed Radio will educate you about health and wellness for seniors and their families throughout Bear County and Central Texas. During the next hour, your hosts Ron Aaron and nurse practitioner Cora Zhuk will share information that will help you improve your health and wellness. And now, here's Ron Aaron and Cora Zhuk. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron. Cora Juke is on special assignment today, so I am flying solo. Just me and Ernesto on the controls, and I think we'll make it out and we'll be fine. We're delighted to welcome to our WellMed Radio hotline a young woman up in the Dallas area at the USMD North Richland Hills Clinic, Sarah Gardner, who is a doctor of osteopathy. She grew up in Dallas, and she says science and people fostered her desire to put the two together and pursue a career in medicine. She says to me, every patient is an individual with individual needs, and nothing from my point of view could be truer. She earned a BS in biology from Centenary College of Louisiana and then a doctorate of osteopathy at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine in Swanee, Georgia. And Dr. Gardner, thanks for joining us on WellMed Radio. Absolutely. Thank you. Glad to be here. Swanee, Georgia is supposed to be a really pretty place. It is. Georgia in and of itself is quite a charming place. Lots of greenery, lots of great parks, so I enjoyed my time there. Now, for those who don't know osteopathy versus uh, MDs, uh, what led you into osteopathy, and what are the differences between that and an MD? So I will tell you, really... um, What led me into it was we had a speaker, I didn't know anything about it, but we had a speaker come to my college, actually, and I went to um, the lecture about what a DO was, and I was really intrigued because basically it really focuses on having to treat the whole person, so really focusing on not just what's physically going on with the body, but also the mind and the spirit, um, because they function as one. And also, um, there's a big musculoskeletal component to it, so dealing a lot with actual um, muscle bones um, and being able to improve that with certain manipulations um, that we do. To be distinguished from a uh, uh, someone who practices chiropractic. Right. So to be distinguished is um, the fact that we do, um, we our schooling is pretty much very similar to MDs, but we just have the addition of doing a lot of hands-on um, therapy for the physical body. And in your experience now at the USMD North Richland Hills Clinic, uh, you're seeing predominantly Medicare-eligible patients? Um, I am. So that's a big focus. I see um, all ages, kind of 18 and up, but there's a big focus on um, the Medicare patients and particularly Medicare Advantage and just the elder, the aging population in general. And while you were in uh, osteopathy school, medical school, was that something you envisioned doing? Did, did you really want to uh, treat older patients? I've always, I tell people, I've always had a love for older people, Um, and um, when you get down to 18, to me, that's um, the scarier part, because I don't know what to do with young ages. The older, the better for me. Well, that's interesting. (laughs) Plus, they can tell you what hurts. (laughs) That is true. Uh, One of the uh, issues I know you wanted to touch on, and I'm uh, probably one of the few who's actually had the uh, two new shingles shots. Oh. Is uh, and, and let me tell you, it hurts. Your arm is a little sore. Don't let them kid you about that. But it's obviously worth it. But tell me why it's worth it. Um, I believe it's worth it because I will say that we are seeing greater incidences um, of the shingles. Um, part of it, I think, is that we are living longer. Um, and as we know, the shingles is increases, the risk of getting it increases as we get older. So because we have are living longer and longer lifespans, we're getting the disease more often and we're seeing it. And it's very um, painful, to say the least. It's a sneaky virus, is it not? It it's is. kind of hanging out on nerve lines and exactly. sound asleep until something wakes it up? Exactly. And so 
I tell people that it's kind of, um, I look at the shingles as really a continuum. So um, it is a virus that shares the same, basically, um, the same genetics, if you will, as the chickenpox uh, virus. And so many people think that if you've had... Um, if you've had the chicken pox, um, that you will um, be safe, in a sense, from the virus. But that's exactly the opposite. If you've had the chicken pox, you are basically kind of in the setup mode to get the clinical disease that is shingles. Um, they're the same virus, but two different, basically, um, two different diseases that they, or two different ways that they show up, whereas the chicken pox is a widespread kind of disease all over the body, mostly the trunk, the thoracic area, um, and the chest area. The shingles is basically kind of a localized, um, basically a localized outbreak of the chicken pox in a sense. And so it's just dormant in the body. It just hangs out until there's some optimal condition um, that allows it to break free in a sense. Now, if you just join us, you're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. We're talking with Sarah Gardner, a doctor of osteopathy who is up at the uh, USMD North Richland Hills Clinic. Uh, not too far from Dallas. Uh, I was one of those kids, uh, I happen to be 76 years old, 77 in May, born at a time when there was no chicken pox vaccine. And so uh, I was one of the kids who, when the neighbor down the street got it, my mom rushed me over to Spencer's house <laughs> and said, get down there, play with Spencer, he's got it. Right. And so I did, and of course I got chicken pox. Is it contagious if, uh, uh, you know, a friend has shingles? Uh, is someone who has, for example, never had chickenpox, can they contract shingles? So the answer is no. They won't actually get the shingles, but what they will actually get is the chickenpox. Oh. So, yes. So the shingles in and of itself is not actually contagious on its own because the shingles, by definition of what it is, is a reactivation of the virus that is already living within your body. So while you have the shingles and you're around someone, for instance, a baby who's never had chickenpox or who's never had the vaccine or like you're saying, a friend who's never had um the chickenpox disease or the vaccine, what they will actually get is not shingles, but they will get the chickenpox. People tell me getting chickenpox as an adult is not fun. It is not. It is not fun. You're definitely sicker. Um, you know, there are people who absolutely end up hospitalized from the chickenpox when you catch it in an older age than when we're younger. It's funny. I'm thinking now to my friend down the street, Spencer Sharwell was his name, who gave me chickenpox. Same thing happened with measles. My mother said, Spencer's got measles. Get down there. Get the measles. Which I did, and I did. Yes. That was kind of the way, the, the natural way to build an immunity um, 
uh, when when in that age it was this person has it. If you go ahead and get it now, you get it over with, right. and you're done. And to some extent, that is true. Your body does actually develop antibodies that protect you for a long time. But as we're discovering now with a lot of the vaccinations, is that as we've gotten older, the level of antibodies and the protection that we had from them is declining. And so they're looking at, you know, thinking about boosters for a lot of vaccines. Now. Oh, and of course, the, you know, the tragedy with of some of the anti-vaxxers around, and shame on them. Uh, kids are getting measles again. Yes, we are seeing outbreaks of um, of the measles, and it's just that these things that were formerly um, suppressed due to all of the vaccination efforts right. are, um, are starting to become more problematic. Uh, and is measles more than just little red bumps? Yes, measles can cause... Um, a lot of um, clinically um, clinical issues, actually, in younger populations, they you know they tend to rebound from it. However, your older populations um, may not do so well. Pregnant pregnant um, patients may not do so well, also. So, so at uh, the, that you're not only protecting huh. yourself, but that you're protecting others. So, should I get a measles booster at age seventy six? right now is not um, necessarily shown to be indicated right now. However, if you actually have your vaccine, your antibody levels tested, and they are um, not present, then that can be a consideration. Huh. And how do you get that done? Any lab can do that? Exactly. So basically, you go to your primary care doctor. They order what are called titers, um, which tells them um, basically the activity level of the antibodies in your body um, huh. that would be able to react in case you see this um, organism again. Sounds like something people should do. Yeah, huh. <laughs> it is. I particularly do it as I am. I, obviously exposed every day to different things. So um, that's one of the things that's always checked as a healthcare worker is do you have antibodies to wow. um, to MMR, to varicella, um, to multiple things to protect you. MMR is measles, mumps, rubella? Measles, mumps, and rubella, yes. And what is rubella? Remind me. So the rubella is a different, basically, form of um, the measles, basically, but it's um, from a different, um, a different, basically, uh, location, but it causes similar disease. This is like your oral exam, right? I'm sorry to throw these things yeah. at you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but you it, seem to be doing... It's very similar to um, the measles, but I want to say its origin, I want to say, wow. um, is German, I believe. Now, th there's another disease that's going around, and I know, you know, we're, we're targeting primarily Medicare-eligible seniors, but mm -hmm. whooping cough is another one that's back again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, basically, the whooping cough is um, from what is called the pertussis um, virus. Um, it is, it affects, basically, it can affect anyone, but it's, it affects more so than anything, it affects kids, babies. Um, and so uh, one of the big things is that um, although we may not get symptoms so much in uh, adulthood as much, um, if you are around, if you're a grandparent, for instance, and you are around, you know, a new grandchild, then you're really um, exposing that um, baby to what would be clinically very difficult for them. So it basically causes kind of upper respiratory infection symptoms, really, really bad, um, bad coughing that can um, affect your respiratory system, your oxygen, your ability huh. to breathe. How do you know if you have it? Um, usually there's a, um, you, there's a pretty classic cough and it's, um, that comes along with it. Um, you, um, can go to your doctor, really, and they can do some um, tests to uh, find out if you have it, but usually it's just the symptoms. All right, now stay with us just a minute. We're going to come right back to you. I'm Ron Aaron. We're talking on our WellMet Radio Hotline with Dr. Sarah Gardner. She's up in the Dallas area. This is 930 AM, The Answer. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is on special assignment today, and she'll be back 
pretty soon, we hope, we miss her, and she will make it back into the studio. Carol Zorniel, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Thank you so much for joining us on WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, nurse practitioner, is on special assignment today, so we are flying solo and enjoying our conversation with Dr. Sarah Gardner. She is an osteopathist and find her up at the USMD clinic in North Richland Hills up near Dallas. We're talking about, we started talking about shingles and then got into a a number of childhood diseases, some of which uh, can affect uh, adults as well. I want to jump back to shingles, uh, Dr. Gardner, if we may, for just a minute, uh, because there, there used to be uh, a shingles vaccine that now has been replaced uh, by the new one. What was the old one like? The um, old vaccine, which was, I think, came out around 2006, was the Zostavax. Um, and it was um, it was a great initiative um, because, obviously, we've been seeing more and more shingles. Um, but I would say the biggest downside or the biggest reason that many patients would come back to me and not get it is because they had kind of heard about the efficacy and that it wasn't um, as protective as they felt it should be, especially for what the cost um, was associated with this vaccine. So it was a one-series vaccine, which was a great thing. You only had to get one dose. Right. Um, but it was um, studies showed that it was only around 50 to 60 percent effective at actually um, preventing the shingles. But if you got the shingles and then had the vaccine, were they less painful? They were, yes. So you were um, likely to have less um, disease severity. So it was likely to maybe not last as long. You may not get as sick and you may not get what most people fear with it, which is what we call post-herpetic neuralgia, which is basically pain that is associated with um, where you uh, the shingles presented for over three months period of time. Oh, wow. I have an aunt, a late aunt, who used to get shingles all the time. This is before there were any vaccines. And uh, just remembering the pain visually that she went through, not getting vaccinated today is just crazy. Yes, yes, it is. It is absolutely probably one of the most common reasons um, that someone comes into the office today. It's also a common reason actually for ER visits um, because um, they may just not know what it is and know that they just have this excruciating pain. Are there treatments for it if you get it? There are um, medications that if you get them, what we call antivirals, within about 72 hours actually um, of presentation of the rash that can decrease um how long the symptoms are there and kind of um, uh, decrease kind of how um, the continued outbreak of the the, the skin lesions. Um, but once again, the important part of that is it needs to be caught within and started within about 72 hours is where we see the wow. best benefit. We don't have a way yet to uh, scrub our bodies clean of that <laughs> shingles virus, do we? Unfortunately, you have a way to scrub your body clean. <laughs> it will live with you in your uh, cells as long as you are living. So, unfortunately, not. Is there a test to see how at risk you might be? So, there are tests, once again, that can look at the 
antibody level that you have in your body. The truth is, is that it's not even recommended that we do the test to see if you have existing antibodies. And the reason is, it's kind of as I quoted earlier that um, the older that we get, the more the antibodies level declines. Um, so your protection level just decreases um, with age. And so honestly, we don't recommend doing any type of um, pre-screening test. It's just recommended that you get the vaccine. And at what age should you uh, uh, first get that vaccine, the new shingles vaccine? So it is indicated that you can get this vaccine at 50 um, and above. And it's two shots within a couple months of each it other. Is. So you get the first shot, and then between two and six months later, you would get the second vaccine. Yeah, I got mine at the local HEB in San Antonio, and they called me when I was due for the second one. Awesome. Because yes, I never yes. would have remembered. <laughs> yes, this, this can be very true because it's, it's not as simple as one and done as the previous shingles vaccine was. And if you don't get the second one, you're not fully protected. That is correct. Wow. Now, there are other vaccines that are important for seniors, and are there not a couple that deal with pneumonia? Yes. So there is the um, Prevnar, um, which is kind of the one that um, we all, I think, pretty much um, know about the most, and that covers 13 different strains that commonly cause um, pneumonia. Um, but then there is um, an additional one, an additional one called the Pneumovax, um, which covers 23 of the most common strains um, that cause pneumonia. And technically, what is pneumonia? So basically, pneumonia is an um, infection slash inflammation um, in um, a part of the lung. And so you get um, a lot of inflammatory um, uh, components and you get actual uh, organisms. And so it ends up causing um, decreased aeration in a piece of the lung. So you get the, um, you can get shortness of breath and it causes, you can also get pain um, in the lung and basically you end up with um, a cough as a result of it. Organisms crawling around in your lungs? <laughs> they don't necessarily, <laughs> they don't necessarily crawl there, but they they hang out uh, huh. <laughs> and cause local infection. So we don't want any of that. We don't want any of that, and kind of like the shingles, we are at increased risk um, as we get older. And are those vaccines uh, uh, very effective? They are. They are. You are. Um, less likely to um, get pneumonia. And then if you do, kind of like uh, most of the other vaccines that um, we encourage you are, even if you do end up with pneumonia, you're not as likely to get as sick. Now, most of us can never remember if we got those vaccines or not. So uh, thank God uh, most providers keep track. This is very true, and so um, it is basically, so for instance, um, most of the, um, if you're not sure kind of when you got a vaccine, a lot of times either your primary care knows because you got it, primary care doctor because you got it in their office, um, and so as for me, I always request records from a previous primary care provider so that I can look to see um, if we are up to date on those vaccines, and then if you know that you got it at your local pharmacy, but you don't know when um, they would also have that record. You know, the other one that the doctor always asks, when was your last tetanus shot? I don't think anybody <laughs> in America remembers the answer to that question. You know what I will tell you? Uh, that is very, very true. Usually people can give kind of a ran roundabout time, um, you know, so if you know that it's been over um, a couple of years, um, it does not necessarily hurt to um, get caught up um, on that vaccine, even if you don't know exactly when. So um, the time frame for that usually recommended about every five years. Huh. Um, and so, you know, sometimes people know oh, it's been at least a couple of years, and usually I take a couple of years to mean somewhere between three and nah. five years before. <laughs> it was the last time I stepped on a rusty nail. <laughs> 
Right. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes people will remember based off of having an incident um, that caused them to need to get um, right. the vaccine. Right. Um, but outside of that, usually, um, if you say it's been a couple of years, it's safe to go ahead and still get um, get the vaccine again. Now, tetanus is uh, the vaccine is often coupled with what? With diphtheria. Okay, you don't want that either. No. I mean, you, you don't, don't want diphtheria. Want, you don't want any <laughs> of that. Um, and the the great thing is that you know, honestly, I can tell you that as long as I've been practicing, I don't, I've never actually seen or diagnosed diphtheria because of the vaccine ever. What is it? Um, so basically, it is a um, bacteria. Um, that the diphtheria is a bacteria that can infect basically kind of the upper respiratory tract, the nose, the throat, the airway, um, and it causes uh, sore throat. It can cause basically really swollen neck glands and fever is what it normally presents as. But again, I've never diagnosed it uh, because vaccines have been so great. <laughs> now, you often hear about it in the wake of a flood. Mm-hmm. That uh, I've got friends who are uh, TV reporters who wandered around in floodwaters, and uh, I remember saying to them, "You better get that tetanus with diphtheria shot." <laughs> yes, yes, this is uh, very, very, uh, very true. And so I would tell you that um, most people um, are um, are vaccinated um, with this now so we don't really see the clinical disease presentation of that here anymore is there any kind of natural immunity um you know honestly for for that um i'm sure if you've come in contact with it maybe you do, you would develop some um antibodies to it like you do um other things but i will tell you that um you know because we don't actually see the disease very often, that the likelihood is if you encounter it, you're probably going to get it. Right. Now, what other vaccines do you recommend to your senior population? Um, So to my senior population, of course, we've talked about shingles, we've talked about um, pneumonia, but also what would be recommended for sure um, yearly um, would be the influenza um, vaccine. That's probably um, one of the most um, important vaccines um, because um, the flu causes a lot of clinical illness. And like everything else, as we get older, um, we are more likely to to get sick. And if we get sick, we're more likely to be sicker than when we were our younger version of ourselves. Yeah, people die of the flu every year. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I will tell you that I have kind of this year, you know, we thought mm, it's not looking as, as though it's going to be as bad as the previous year, but I would say that I'm starting to see more and more of the flu now, um, starting in the past couple of weeks. Our seven-year-old daughter, we, we were all vaccinated and we have three small children, a seven-year-old and twin boys who are five and my wife and oh. I, we all got vaccinated for the flu and, and sure enough, our seven-year-old was diagnosed uh, a couple of weeks ago with type A flu, but a very mild case. She showed in the test she had the flu, but the only symptom she had was a high fever one night. Gotcha. And so the, the likelihood is that the fact that she got the vaccine was a primer for her immune system, and so that's why she did not um, get as sick. But I will tell you, the flu can take down the healthiest um, of people. Um, not had any illnesses before, who are, you know, eating well, exercising, and we see people die from the flu. Now, what a lot of folks may not understand, Dr. Uh, Gardner, is that yeah. unlike uh, the, the double shingles vaccine or the pneumonia vaccines, uh, you got to get a f- flu vaccine every year. Every single year. Because the every flu that comes here changes every year. Mm-hmm. It does. It is one of those viruses that, that is able to basically what we call mutate, which means that it it changes um, its um, its let's see let's, its sequence, its genetic sequence, and so because of that, um, from year to year, we don't have the appropriate or the um, 
the best antibodies to protect ourselves against it. Um, so the, the lovely scientists that we are constantly working to see what's, um, what strains um, are likely to happen or to occur, and they are creating vaccines yearly based off of what the research is showing. Now, obviously, the flu is smarter than we are. Absolutely. And unfortunately, a lot of viruses are much smarter than we are. <laughs> uh, they've been around before us, and they'll be here after us, I gather. Yes, huh. yes, yes, yes. I tell people all the time, you cannot outsmart a, a virus for, for some reason. <laughs> Now, I, not, I know a lot of patients will come to you not feeling well. Uh, turns out they, they have a, a cold, a virus, but they want an antibiotic. Yes. How do you explain to them they don't need an antibiotic? Um, basically, the simplest way that I explain it is that uh, antibiotics are for bacteria, and that's the only thing that an antibiotic treat is something that is bacterial in nature. And um, so if you have a virus like the flu virus, um, there is no antibiotic that will cure your flu. You will have the symptoms of the flu. You will get over the flu um, as your body is able to. Um, The antibiotic does nothing but kind of increase um, or basically kind of decrease your good bacteria in your gut. Um, and it also um, is creating a lot of, basically, um, resistance. And so um, as time goes on, the, the antibiotics are not going to work as well because we're giving it to you for unnecessary reasons or things that we know won't improve your current condition. Uh, let me ask you a question. You're fading in and out a little bit. Are, oh, you, on, are you on a handset with, uh, like, a regular old-fashioned phone? I am on an old-fashioned phone, okay. and I don't know that it's the that's all right. Here's a, here's a tip you will always remember. Talk into the round thing with the holes in it. Because you're drifting away. Is it still drifting? I think my phone is a little bit shabby. I should probably That's all right. That What's your back now? Okay. Hey, there are a lot of kids today who have no idea what I just said. Absolutely not. My kids would, would be one of those who who believe that the cell phone is the only form of telephone that exists. (laughs) That's true. Uh, And they they want them younger and younger and younger, and we parents say no. This is absolutely true. My three-year-old believes he has a phone, which is technically my phone or his dad's phone, and we have to constantly remind him, no, you don't have a phone. This This is our phone. I love that. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, our kids talking to bananas, that works. <laughs> right, anything. And, they, and with a banana, you don't have to worry about them spending too much time on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, get, yeah, they get bored of that pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly. As you think about, and, and I want to jump to your population of uh, Medicare-eligible yeah. seniors, uh, what are some of the other issues that, uh, you see, and did we miss any vaccines that uh, it's important to take? Um, I would say um, other um, vaccines that I think are um, important to to consider would be um, the hepatitis vaccines, um, hepatitis A, hepatitis B. If you've not um, had those or you can't remember, then that's something we can check and see if you have titers for. Um, as well as it's also important to um, be tested for, like, uh, even though there's no vaccine for hepatitis C, but along that line it's important to be tested um, for that vaccine or for that um for that virus um, because there was a period of time in, in what we call a baby boomer population where it was more prevalent um, and it wasn't tested for routinely. So we sometimes will find that you've had some exposure um, to that, and so it's a good thing to know. And what is uh, hepatitis A? How does it present itself? So hepatitis A um, usually will also just pre- it will pre- like uh, perhaps just a mild um, a viral illness, maybe some fever, maybe some chills, maybe some GI um, side effects like nausea, vomiting, um, uh, was how it would manifest if it does. And there are other forms of hepatitis, right? Yes. Equally. Uh, hepatitis B and there's hepatitis C and there are some other ones that we don't 
talk about a lot um, because they don't cause a lot of clinically relevant disease. Right. I'm Ron Aaron, by the way, if you've just joined us on 930 AM, The Answer, we're talking with Dr. Sarah Gardner. She's a doctor of osteopathy at the USMD North Richland Hills Clinic. And we're talking about the kind of work she does in seeing patients who are predominantly, but not all, uh, Medicare eligible. We started off talking about shingles and the new shingles vaccine. We covered a bunch of the other vaccines. And now I'm, I'm interested in what are some of the more common conditions that uh, you find in your patients. And I guess one of the top ones would be diabetes. Yes, diabetes um, is, is absolutely very common. Um, and I will say it's probably one of the illnesses that can lead to lots of long-term complications if it is not um, under control. Yeah, but- so I will say that we're dealing with, as, as our population has uh, aged or, age, or ages, um, then we're seeing a lot of the long-term complications of uncontrolled diabetes. Well, I, I work with a guy here at uh, 930 AM, The Answer, who's talked publicly about it, so I'm not breaking any confidence. In fact, I've had him on this show uh, he's uh, just about turning 50, uh, had uncontrolled diabetes for a period of time because he figured, well, you know, I know what I'm doing. I don't have to worry about it. I just eat right. I'll be fine. Didn't get his blood checked, didn't do anything to help manage his diabetes, and he ended up cutting a foot in a pool, never felt it because of the uh, uh, challenges he was facing uh, uh, with very little feeling in his feet. He ended up losing uh, his right leg from the uh, knee down and more recently developed serious eye problems, including losing sight in, in one eye and the other one is, you know, still touch and go. It, yes, it is one of the illnesses that I tell people that if someone were to tell me that I am diabetic, it is the one thing that would make me um, straighten up and really be involved in my um, disease process because we know that it is the number one cause of blindness. It is the number one cause of, of kidney failure. Um, and so um, it, it, there's uh, lots of dialysis uh, that boomed because of this disease. So not a, not a great thing. Um, there, it, it also causes a lot of heart and other vascular disease, like peripheral vascular disease, so it's one of the number one causes of amputations. Um, and so it's more than just, you know, sugar running high in the body. It's sugar running rampant in the body and causing um, all kind of downstream uh, consequences and things that we don't necessarily early on, but the longer it goes untreated, the longer it's causing what we call micro and macrovascular disease, so it's affecting little arteries um, in, such as the kidneys and larger ones, such as those that um, feed the heart and feed the, the limbs. Well, it is so sad to see what he's gone through, but he'd be the first one to tell you it was his own fault, and he does check his blood regularly now. Yes, and unfortunately, um, that's not um, uncommon that we see um, that we see people get very, very um, involved and very active in the process once they've already had some um, some consequence that we can't um, undo. Unfortunately, once the right. damage is done, it's done, and so that's why we're really adamant from the beginning if we can keep those levels in the uh, below, you know, A1C is something you commonly hear, below 7 um, is the goal, then the less damage you will do over time. Unfortunately, unlike frogs, we can't regenerate legs. We cannot. We cannot regenerate legs. Thus far, we, we haven't been able to necessarily regenerate vision, um, although there is a lot that can be done to try and prevent blindness once the uh, evidence is seen in the eyes. But it is a, once you start to have complications, we're in a whole different playing field. And of your patients uh, who are newly diagnosed with diabetes, how do you try to impress upon them uh, that they can avoid all these problems if they do this? Honestly, by just having a very honest conversation 
I think sometimes it's not even a matter, uh, it's a matter of them not really understanding all of the consequences that we see from diabetes. And so, you know, giving them the facts that it is the number one cause of blindness, that it is the number one cause of uh, being on dialysis, that it is the reason that you, uh, there are so many uh, amputations, and that not only that, but it causes a weakened immune system overall. So any um, any type of infection that you get, we look at you as being immunosuppressed um, because of the disease itself. Wow. My PCP, Dr. Richard Presses, uh, very interesting, impressed upon me uh, the need to uh, eat right, exercise, balanced diet. Uh, I went in for an appointment, this is uh, several years ago now, and my A1C had been a little high. Uh, and he had sitting in the exam room with me uh, a blood glucose monitor. Mm-hmm. Was, he put it on the exam table, and I was sitting in a chair. <laughs> and we started talking. And about halfway through the appointment, he said, uh, hey, Ron, do you know what that is? I said, well, well, yeah. It says on the box, blood glucose monitor. But people with diabetes need that. And he said to me, you're almost there. And that probably was enough to make you think, oh, my God. Yeah, you better believe it. Yes, it absolutely changes. It changes um, the way that you operate, really, um, from day to day, you know. Um, I even have, for instance, you know, patients who are, let's say, pilots. um, And, you know, once they are diagnosed with diabetes, one of the main things that they now have to worry about is, Am I going to progress to the point of needing insulin? And, um, you know, if so, then they won't be able to, they may not be able to fly. Wow. Yeah, because it it is, um, it causes so many changes in the body. You can have low blood sugar and things that can cause you to not be uh, cognitively aware of what's going on. Um, And so those are things that put other people at risk. So um, it's really that severe and that important. It was like hitting me over the head with a two-by-four. Absolutely. And it worked. Absolutely. I tell people all the time, you know, they are, you know, if you're type 1 diabetic, you know, there's nothing that you can do about that. But for a great amount of type 2 diabetes, it is what we do every day. And with type 2, by taking better care, you may be able to avoid it? You may be able to avoid the consequences of it. Sure, I have a decent amount of patients who um, are not requiring a medication um, because they've made such great right. lifestyle changes. Right. All right, we're going to uh, take a little break, do a little business at our side. I want you to uh, practice speaking into the round thing with the holes in it. We're going to come back to you. <laughs> okay. And uh, talk, uh, you, know, you know, about other diseases I'm sure you see too much of, COPD being one. This is WellMed Radio. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The Answer, our co-host, Cora Juke, on special assignment today. And we're talking with Doctor of Osteopathy, uh, Sarah Gardner, up in the Dallas area. Carol Zornio, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air. But what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m., The Answer. You're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 a.m., The Answer. We are so delighted you are with us having a wonderful conversation with Dr. Sarah Gardner, uh, she is in, uh, up in the uh, 
USMD North Richland Hills office and is a uh, DO doctor of osteopathy. And we're delighted uh, that she's been with us. It's been fascinating. And I've learned a lot of stuff. Now, we talked about diabetes, uh, a lot of the uh, previous to that, vaccinations, seniors especially, uh, require. Talk to me about COPD. I see a lot of TV ads for it, and they always show Grandpa too tired to play with his grandson. (laughs) Yes, so um, I will say that there was a period of time when smoking was considered the thing to do. Um, and that it was safe and that you were super cool um, until we learned otherwise and learned that smoking causes um, a lot of disease to the lung. Most commonly um, is COPD, which stands for basically chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And so basically what it is, it's a chronic inflammation um, of the lungs. And so it in and of itself causes difficulty with breathing. It causes um, this cough that usually manifests um, with a lot of mucus um, production. Um, And you also can hear um, wheezing. And the downside of the downside of it is that as it progresses, um, then you can get to the point where you are chronically um, on oxygen, um, which is not not a fun thing and having to carry that around everywhere you go. And also, um, you're at more risk for some of the other things that we talked about, such as uh, pneumonia or bad outcomes from uh, the flu. Um, so it overall is a... Um, a pretty burdensome, burdensome disease to have. Now, asking for a friend, Dr. Gardner, yes. if you smoked, say, oh, I don't know, three packs a day but quit in the 1970s, are you still at risk for COPD? You would still be at risk. And part of that also depends on um, how long you smoked. So if you smoked three packs a day for five years and someone smoked one pack a day for uh, five years, um, both are still at increased risk. The the thing that we do know, though, is that once you stop smoking, the lungs are able to heal itself some um, so that you may not your chances or um, risk of developing COPD, if you don't already have it, will decrease. My friend will be happy to hear that. Yes. He says with a smile. (laughs) So no matter what age um, you are, if you stop smoking, your your odds of um, regenerating some lung function or having less long-term consequence of smoking does decrease. Now, I, I know some friends who had polio as children, and they're now seeing a reoccurrence of many of the symptoms. Uh, yes, and I will tell you that um, polio is kind of like the whole thing with uh, diphtheria, um, as we were talking about earlier, that we, um, it was, for the most part, uh, eradicated um, with the efforts um, of vaccinations, but um, we are seeing some resurgence of it, and mostly polio ex- uh, affects the musculoskeletal system, so it can cause muscle weakness. Um, it's kind of the the hallmark um, of that disease, and um, I actually do know um, uh, a friend who um, had polio, and uh, when he was younger, and he's probably um, in his 40s now, um, which um, he still has the the physical manifestations in terms of some um, muscle weakness, some limping from that disease. Yeah. That's sad. It is. It is. Because it is one that is totally um, preventable, if you will. Well, I was, I think, the first generation to get the Salk oral polio vaccine. Yeah, they used okay. to give it on sugar cubes. Oh, my goodness. Now, that, I've never seen that. <laughs> yeah. When I was a wee little one. Well, you know, it, 
probably tasted fairly decent, I guess. Oh, it did. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it was easy to get. Right, and Dennis loved it. <laughs> Just it kidding. Them, it kept them going, right? Yeah, exactly. We got about two minutes left. Uh, what haven't okay. I asked you about that, that you wanted to share with us about things you see in your practice? Um, I would say that um, probably the, the biggest things that I see in my practice are, um, one, um, I would say arthritis, so osteoarthritis is um, a big thing. And I think the thing to really know about that is we can um, we can manage it. We don't want you to go untreated. We don't want you to be um, in pain and not doing the things that you would like to do in life and that you can still get out there and exercise. And that's one of the things that actually it can improve some of the pain. So you may not can run on the concrete, but certainly if you can get in a if you can um, get into water aerobics, things that um, also keep you physically active, um, that's fantastic. Um, activity is a great thing no matter what age you are. I hear many providers say it really is the magic bullet. It really is. And so if you keep yourself moving, like I said, I'm a big fan of water aerobics um, and swimming because you get great body workouts. Right. Um, you're improving uh, your stamina. You're keeping your heart, you know, pumping strong, and uh, you're not putting so much pressure on your joints, and it actually makes you feel better. we got to stop you right here. Thank you. You've been a great guest and uh, enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's been really fun. Thank you. Dr. Sarah Gardner up uh, in the Dallas area, thank you very much for joining us. I'm Ron Aaron. Cora Juke on special assignment today, so it was me alone on WellMed Radio on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You've been enjoying WellMed Radio, an exclusive presentation of WellMed Medical Management. Join us next week for more on your health and well-being. For more information on WellMed or to hear this broadcast again, go to wellmedmedicalgroup.com. We'll see you next week on WellMed Radio.